Hello and welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We represent and work on behalf of over 700 LGBTI activist organizations across Europe and Central Asia, and our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of queer activism in the regions. For the past 14 years, Evelyn Parity has been the executive director of ILGA Europe, leading the organization as it navigated a time of huge change for LGBTI people. Last May, Evelyn announced her intention to step down from the role this year, and she'll hand the reins over to our incoming executive director at the end of September. My name is Brian Finnegan, and this is the first of three interviews with Evelyn as we get ready to say goodbye to her. In this episode, I'm asking Evelyn about the current political situation for LGBTI rights, how politics have evolved over her time leading ILGA Europe, and what it's like to work for political change in a very altered landscape. Welcome, Evelyn. Let's maybe begin at the very beginning, when you began as an advocacy officer at ILGA Europe, all the way back in 2005. Tell me what it was like to do the work at that time. Well, um, thank you for creating this space, Brian, for me to walk down memory lane in many ways. Um, Indeed, it's been a period of reflection for me since I announced that I was going to step down. And part of that reflection has really been about thinking back about what it was like when I joined the organization, as you say, back in 2005. I was a policy officer then, that's how we were called. And it's actually one of these uh, moments where you do emphasize the positive because so much has changed for the better. When I started, there was, well, there was six of us, first of all, in the team, two of us working in the policy field, and we were entirely focused, almost entirely focused on the European Union, working with the European Commission, but in such a very restricted way, because most of our work was dependent on funding we were receiving from the EU. And so by default, we had to only focus on issues that were deemed acceptable for the EU, (laughs) which meant that we had to really look at Topics like discrimination and employment, we were limited by any spheres of competences that the European Union has. And at the time, it was non-discrimination and employment, moving a little bit in some other sectors like freedom of movement. And I don't want to get overly EU jargony here, but we were limited. And that meant that issues like trans rights, family rights, um, anything beyond that was very, very challenging and difficult for us to do. And we were also very limited in what we could do beyond the EU borders. But also, if I think back, you know, how we were working with the EU institutions, it was literally a handful of people that we were working very closely with. So it was nowhere near what it's like today, where so many people have LGBTI human rights and equality in their work. It was, you know, literally, you know, five people, you could count the people that you would work with in the European Commission, people who would actually take your phone call and actually meet with you. So this is a great measure of how things have changed and a positive one. When you think that, you know, we're today, there's a EU-wide LGBTIQ equality strategy that so many people across the institutions really take a stand and really include the work that, that we're invited, you know, to as an organization, but not just us, like, so many other LGBT organizations are invited frequently to be active partners in policymaking. And I'll say it's also true for the Council of Europe, which is the other big institution that we work with. I remember back then, we were just trying to get anyone in the Council of Europe. So there were people working very hard on this 
working to try to get any of the Council of Europe to include, you know, the thinking of LGBT at the time in their work. And now we have all of these mechanisms and instruments and so many parts of the Council of Europe that actively take on LGBTI human rights as part of their mandate. So that is like a hugely positive change, which is, I think, very important to acknowledge in this moment in time we're in where things, you know, so many things are going in the wrong direction. But I think we do need to look back to see how much has changed for the better. And I suppose thinking about how that has changed and how many more people are on board. And as you mentioned, the current climate we're in, which is where in member states there's been scapegoating of LGBTI people for political gain. And at the same time, there's a, you know, a clear understanding within the EU institutions about LGBTI equality and rights. What's going wrong? And in your opinion, why is it going wrong? And maybe as a follow up question to that What's going right in the institutions? I think what is really challenging at the moment, so to use your phrase, like what's going in the maybe in the wrong direction, and it's not just in the institutions in Brussels or in Strasbourg, I think it's in politics in most countries, is the fact that, you know, well, LGBTI human rights have been used as a wedge issue for a long time. But I think we have now entered a phase where in many, many places, as you say, it's part of a polarization and it becomes very much of a even more dividing topic and issue. Uh, and it positions people and groups and parties in a us versus them dichotomy. And in my humble experience, that never works and that never helps to go in the right direction because the minute that you start falling into an us versus them is the minute that you stop listening to each other, that you get more firmly anchored into your positions, that there's no room for learning, there's no room for negotiating, there's no room for trying to figure out ways forward. And I think that's the dynamic that is established at many different levels. I think, you know, people who are working at national level will recognize a lot of this polarization in their own countries. I think we see it clearly in the institutions with countries like, you know, Poland and Hungary taking those starch positions. Of course, that starts to have repercussions around how intergovernmental institutions work, because then that creates the veto power, you know, people are either for or against. And this kind of dynamic is really something that I think is very worrying for the immediate future. But you did say, you did ask me what I think is going in the right direction. And the positive that we've observed in the last few years is after years of what we were saying was complacency that was starting to get really well established in so many countries. So many of the European countries that had broken ground for 20 years ago, they kind of sat on their laurels for a little while and, and forgot that, you know, the work for equality is never done and that you constantly have to invest. And I think at the moment, people are realizing how complacent they have, they had become, and they're starting to re-engage and remobilize and not only on their own, but to regroup together. So to, to create critical masses of, you know, political support. And I think that's the positive trend at the moment, the positive trend that all of us need to be really trying to work to strengthen, because that's going to be the antidote to it all. 
and there's opportunities within that to be gained. Yes, and I think one of the opportunities that is very important is out of this, I think, acknowledgement that equality is not a linear process, that things can go forward and backward and sideways, that you constantly have to invest. I think more and more politicians and policymakers are realizing that they have to do this work with others and others, not just other governments but also very closely with civil society. And I think the other layer to this is also there's greater recognition that issues are interconnected. That is not something that was, I think, very apparent when I started, you know, 18 years ago. I think everything was still very much into a silo mode of different equality strands and not even looking at equality in connection with social justice and social policies. And I think that is another great opportunity because we all know that none of this work will work if we work in silo, that all of the issues, whether it's discrimination, oppression, marginalization for migrants, for any racialized populations, for LGBTI people, all of the work on gender equality, all of the work around, you know, true social justice all the work on climate, these are all interconnected issues. And for me, in the moment we're in, that is also part of what I mean by mobilizing and regrouping. So Evelyn, politics have been evolving over the the time you've been at ILGA Europe. And over the past few years, a new way of doing politics has really embedded where politicians are using social media visibility to say they support things like LGBTI rights, but are doing very little actual strategic work to secure and achieve those rights. Would you say that's true? Well, yes, I I would say that the world that we live in and in large part social media has really changed the way politicians work. And of course, you know, there's a generalization in what I'm going to say, so it doesn't necessarily apply to every single politician that we work with. But I think it is a fact that we are living in societies where anyone who's in the public eye is expected to have very quick, immediate reactions to any developments, to have an opinion and a message about pretty much everything that happens in society. And I think that creates a whole lot of tensions with what the actual work is about. Because in reality, anything that is to be done, you know, yes, equality, LGBTI equality, but any sort of issue, a lot of the actual work is not very sexy to represent. It's about discussing. It's about reflecting. It's about talking to people. It's about informing yourself. It's about understanding different points of views. It's about actually accepting that there are perspectives different from yours. And all of this is, you know, very often messy, uh, complex, and doesn't lend itself very well to, you know, the easy 140 character type tweet messages that we need to put forward. And I think what that means for organizations like Ilga Europe means that we have to deal with people who hold elected office who have to be able to transmit very, very simplified messages where we're actually asking them to, what in, in reality, what we would need from them is something that acknowledges the complexity of the needs of people, that acknowledges some of the harsh realities, that acknowledges sometimes challenging positions, and very few or fewer and fewer politicians are doing that. 
I think with the social media type of culture that accompanies politics, I think one of the problems is that it quickly falls into being about the individuals over being about the issue. And the minute that it becomes about the individual politician, the individual person, then people become more worried about what's at stake for them rather than what's at stake for the issue and what's at stake for the cause. And that's the other piece that becomes very hard for any civil society organization, for any activists, because at the end, it's not about them. It's about the cause that they're supposed to be contributing to. So I think that is something that, I mean, it's there. We won't necessarily change it uh, as much as we wish, but it's really changing the way in which we can work with politicians. This said, I think there's an important distinction to make between those who are running for office and are, you know, have an electorate that they need to appeal to and those who work as policymakers in a local government, you know, a national government or even in the e-institutions. Because we continue to meet, you know, every year we continue to meet people who are truly, really, really committed to doing the work, who are very smart, who listen, who want to do it, you know, well, who want to continue to learn about new issues and to educate themselves. But it's clear that there's a tension between what a person in an institution or a government can do if the political will is not there. And so in short, I think the work of advocacy on the LGBTI issue, whether it's in Brussels or at national capital, capital or local level, it's grown more and more complicated for all of us. And is a lack of willingness to engage with civil society part of that, given that it, that cult of the individual has grown across social media? I think in some ways, yes. I think the relationships with civil society, from our experience, is, is changing and not always for the better. Uh, I would say probably part of it is because we bring the complexity that they're trying to shy away from. We're making it a little bit more nuanced when they need, you know, simple messages. We're asking them to be holding themselves accountable, which is, you know, sometimes uncomfortable and unwarranted. So in some cases, yes, I, th I think, you know, the, the relationships are changing, but it's not like it was always, you know, a, a great, you know, love affair. <laughs> After all, our role as civil society organization is always to be holding any public official to account. So in effect, it's not a bad thing that it's uncomfortable, uh, but I think it's uncomfortable for different reasons now. It's, it's uncomfortable because we are, we're challenging ways that are about them, perhaps more than about their positions. And in their positions more and more over the last few years, EU leaders have been talking about the values of the European Union and how we hold those values dear. How well do you think they hold up and make sure those values are at the core of politics in the EU? I think the European values narrative has become very popular and a little bit overused. And I also think that words that are attached to these European values, like equality, diversity, freedom, democracy, are a bit too often used without really without a real understanding of what these values are about. I think this is where they've become maybe easily used mottos that people have not reflected upon for some time. And they become part of the us versus them narrative as well. Like those of us who hold these values are the good ones and those who are going against 
are the not so good ones. So it's it's a little bit of fueling the the divide for me. But this said, I think I don't want to be overly critical of all you, you all leaders in the EU institutions. I I still believe that some have a great sense of what they mean and what they're fighting for. Uh, some you know really understand very often from their own experience what that means. In recent months, I've been part of some of the work with the team on EU discussions on how to defend and strengthen democracy. And in those conversations, got to be in in spaces a lot with uh, one of the EU commissioners, Commissioner Jourova, who grew up in the then Czechoslovakia. And, you know, when you meet people like that, you know that when she speaks about fighting for democracy, it comes from a a deep personal experience of what it means to not have democracy. So, I mean, there are those who hold, you know, high level positions at the moment who really have a very, very clear sense of what they're talking about. And I think those are the voices that we need to elevate more because it's more embedded. It's more embedded and it's more deep as a meaning because otherwise we are using the brands like equality and democracy and freedom and diversity as as ways to feel better, I would say, rather than actually knowing what we're defending and the complexity that it that lies behind it. And you've used the words us and them a couple of times as we've been talking. Not every politician or person knows how to counteract us and them narratives. From your long-standing point of view and having watched this evolve, how would you say that those narratives can be counteracted? It's actually a, a difficult task from the point of view of it requires any one of us to put ourselves in the uncomfortable position and sometimes actually a really hurtful position to actually open your yourself to hearing things that are really harmful and hurtful for you. I think it starts by listening and really being open to where people are at and then responding to trying to walk them through where you want them to to go. But not all of us are able to do that because it means putting yourself in a very vulnerable position, which is where having allies, it's so important. Having people who are able to take the heat, people who are in a you know more comfortable and, and safer position to actually have the harder conversation. But I think it's unavoidable if you want to build bridges, if you want to go beyond the us versus them, you, you have to acknowledge that some people, some people are truly deeply hurtful and very strong in their, you know, anti-LGBT, anti-women, anti-human rights in general position. And they're just going to be, whatever you do, they're just going to be in that position of being hurtful. But I genuinely think many people just come from a place of lack of knowledge, ignorance, you know, prejudice that they see all the time. And what needs to happen is actually to hear where they're at and then bring them along. But as I say, I think this is where the more allies and the more people in our societies, in our, you know, in political parties, in different sectors of society are able to, are equipped to have these conversations, the more progress we'll make. Because we can't always ask an LGBTI person themselves to do that hard work of explaining what it's like to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, non-binary, because that's about putting yourself out there constantly. And that is hard. 
that is really hard work. So we all know the EU elections are coming up again next year, June 2024, and the great fear is that the far right will gain much more footing. What's Ilga Europe's outlook on this and what do you think is needed to counteract? Well, our outlook as the team is preparing already for our election campaign is like we've done for many, many previous EU election is to be ready to really campaign and to mobilize and to mobilize across the EU with all of our wonderful members and many other activists to get the word out that to make people think about what the EU election represents, to make sure that people actually care about voting, that they educate themselves about the different political parties, etc., etc., and that also there's work to be done to hold candidates accountable and to get them to commit, because that is what matters the most, I think. It is about being part of, along with many other civil society who do the same, it's about being part of democracy, of this great democratic exercise, the only real large democratic exercise in the EU, which is the European elections, to really care about this this vote and these elections, because that's the only possible antidote to, you know, having a next European parliament, which is overly represented by the right and even the far right. I think there's a great fear and we know where it comes from because we see that in many, many countries, the voting goes towards the right and the far right. At the same time as we're recording this podcast, Brian, just you know, less than a week ago, there were elections in Spain and there were great fears that the far right parties would really win a lot of seats and that proves that you know it's possible to overcome this worry that you know people really paid attention so maybe it's good in some way that we are actually concerned that people pay attention and maybe that will get more and more voters across Europe to really engage I think because a lot is at stake it's very clear a lot is at stake Um, and for LGBTI equality specifically clearly we know that if the composition of the government was to change further to the right that would make some of the important votes and the important positions harder to, to gain But it would matter for a whole lot of other issues that actually have an impact for LGBTI people. It would would really make votes on any social policies probably more complicated, any vote on holding EU countries, EU member states accountable on rule of law and democracy more complicated. It It would have a negative impact on climate change related regulations. So I think all these issues that people care about. So this is my appeal, as I won't necessarily be directly part of the EU election campaign this time around, but my appeal to everyone to really connect with the Ilke Europe campaign in the coming year and really engage wherever you are within the EU. As we wrap up, I'm just going to ask you a a very difficult question. You've been, well, I hope not so difficult. You know, you've been with Ilke Europe for 18 years, 15 of those as the executive director, and you've watched the evolution of politics over that time. And you've engaged with the institutions and with many politicians and leaders, sometimes with gain, I'm sure sometimes with frustrations, uh, everything that comes with the work that this is and that you've done. In a utopian world, could you tell me what is the best way the politicians could do their job? 
I'm going to answer by actually speaking of one politician currently, probably the only politician in Europe that truly inspires me. So I think a politician can do their job if they do the work like Petra de Suter, the current vice prime minister of Belgium, does her work. She does it with great integrity. She knows how to hold herself to account. She listens. She works hard, really clearly works hard at knowing and understanding the issues and the files that she's responsible for. Because people have to do, to, to do their job, to do their homework, you know, and she does that. She knows how to bring people along. She knows how to recognize when she and admit and apologize when a mistake is made, which is something that too few people do. And frankly, I keep on, you know, watching someone like her and thinking if more of our political leaders and decision makers were behaving that way, I think things would be so much better. And she's also someone who connects the issues and understands how, how so much in our societies is interconnected. And I'll go back to saying something we were talking about earlier, which is you never feel that it's about her. It's about the contribution she makes to things that she cares about and people she cares about. So that's my utopia, which is not so, you know, utopian. You just need to have more people like that. Thanks, Evelyn. We will be joining each other again to talk about the evolution of the LGBTI movement, which is a lot of the other work that ILGA Europe does in terms of connecting to our membership and to activists across Europe and Central Asia at another time. But for now, thank you for joining me on the front line. Great pleasure. Thank you, Brian, and see you soon. You have been listening to The Frontline. Ilga Europe's LGBTI Activism Podcast. Please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts. The more we hear from you, the more activists we gain from our work at Ilga Europe to build a strong, resilient movement for positive change in LGBTI people's lives. Tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now.